I'm Tiziana Deering. Let's look at tomorrow on Radio Boston. Young Love, a feminist club, Southern accents, and the witch trials. We will be talking about John Proctor is the Villain, presented by the Huntington Theater. It is a throwback to 2018, the production that also makes the audience grapple with the hashtag MeToo movement using the Salem witch trials and the crucible. Fascinating. We'll have a cast member and the producer tomorrow. You're listening to Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering. There is a new bust on Beacon Hill. Frederick Douglass's likeness now graces the Senate chamber alongside Ben Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, and others. And there will be another. Senate President Karen Spilka is taking consultation on a woman from our local history who should join Frederick Douglass. Now, Kimberly Atkins' store knows who she wants. The Boston Globe senior opinion writer and columnist says, put Mariah Stewart next to Douglas. Stewart was the first black female published political writer and the first woman to give public political speeches. So we invited Kimberly to stop by Studio 2 this morning and explain why Stewart is the one. So Mariah Stewart was an abolitionist. She was a writer. She was actually the first published black woman to be what is essentially an early version of my job, right? Being a a political writer about the events that were going on and her pieces were published in The Liberator, which was an abolitionist newspaper that was based right here in Boston. But her uh, beginnings uh, and how she got to that point is really extraordinary. She was born free, uh, but she fell into indentured servitude when she was orphaned at the age of five and she was working in the house of a minister. So imagine that. She was basically a child laborer because that was the only at way. At age five. At age five, because that was the only way for her to survive. And so at that time, people who were in indentured servitude. They didn't get regular education. She did go to Sunday school with the minister where she learned some reading and writing. And then she would read the books in his library. And finally, when she was released from that uh, contract in Hartford, she moved to Boston and became a part of this uh, black free community that was really located really concentrated in Beacon Hill. And that is where a lot of discussion about uh, abolitionist philosophy, uh, equal rights, and how to bring black people to full citizenship was taking place. And she was very taken by that and began writing herself about it. And she becomes an orator and pays the price. For becoming an orator. She does. So after her pieces are published in The Liberator, she is urged to say, you know, why don't you start speaking and doing this? Now, imagine at that time, this is the early 1830s. So women aren't even supposed to talk politics in their own home. Like that's not their place for any woman, let alone a woman of color. So here she is speaking at public venues around in and around Boston to audiences, sometimes they're audiences of women, but sometimes they are mixed audiences in terms of gender, which is extraordinary, and mixed audiences in terms of race, which is even more extraordinary. And she is calling on everything from uh, history to theology to all kinds of foundations to argue how black people can bring themselves into a better position, a full position, not just, you know, being not uh, enslaved, but being in industry, being in the arts, being in the sciences, 
full, full claim. Nobody was giving speeches like that. She actually is an inspiration to Frederick Douglass, who came later uh, and became a, a widely known orator for this. So let's talk about Frederick Douglass, because when you write this piece, this isn't just you saying, hey, I have an idea, right? Uh, the uh, Karen Silk, Spilka, uh, the head of the Senate, uh, you know, on Beacon Hill, is putting in two new busts. Frederick Douglass's bust has just gone in uh, to the state house, and she is going to pick a woman. Yes. Um, and so you are arguing um, that Mariah Stewart should be that woman. Yes. So that was also interesting to me because in the pantheon of womanhood, you had other choices too. So why Mariah Stewart specifically? Many, many other strong, powerful women that might have also inspired you, you could have picked from. So why this one? Well, I wanted to make the case for her because so many people are unaware of her very existence. There is a plaque in Boston. It's actually less than a block from the State House on Joy Street of the home where she lived. It's a little plaque. If you don't look, you'll miss it. And she's such an extraordinary part of the story of Boston. I know um, that uh, Senate President Spilka has floated uh, Abigail Adams, who is, of course, a wonderful figure in history, but she has plenty of statues. She has two in Quincy alone, you know, Um, and there are other women. There's Phyllis Wheatley. There are so many other women with who has a statue. Yes. With ties to Boston, but who are better known. This is a wonderful opportunity to bring to light if this is meant to really honor people and to bring more diversity in that Senate chamber. This is a wonderful way, I think, to do that. I'm not saying it's the only choice, but I'm saying it's an outstanding one. We're speaking with Kimberly Atkins Store, who wrote a piece arguing that a bust of Mariah Stewart would be appropriate uh, in the Senate chamber. So this other piece that you said, which really struck, struck me, and you said it here and you wrote it is you feel she laid the groundwork to make what you do possible. Yes. And I found that deeply moving. So talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, this was a woman who, in her own conviction, you know, walked into the offices of the Liberator and said, I have these papers. Now, she wasn't, uh, you know, a known scholar. She was self-taught educationally. But she had the chutzpah to stand up and say, I have something to say. And they printed it. She had the ability to stand in front of this audience. I can't imagine. I get nervous. I'm nervous right now talking to you. She had the ability to do that and open that door. And as you said, she was run out of Boston, essentially, after this. She received so much hate. I complain sometimes about my inbox. It's nothing compared to what she went through in breaking down those doors for people like me to come after her and be in Boston writing my opinions published in The Globe. And that's so important for people to see this didn't happen accidentally, but what an important role Boston played in the change that brought women further into the public and opened up these spaces for us. Now, we don't know her, but she inspired you. If she could speak to us today, what do you think she'd say? I would think she would say we still have a lot of work to do because despite all of the changes, the uh, amendments to the Constitution, the uh, evolution of civil rights and other struggles, we're still so far behind. I think she would be... Happy to see that progress was made, but disappointed that it's still not full equality. And if you could speak to her, what would you say? Thank you. 
Kimberly Atkins-Store, senior opinion writer and columnist for the Boston Globe, stopped by Studio 2 earlier this morning. Dart Adams is in Studio 2 now. He's a Boston journalist and historian, has been working on preserving landmarks uh, associated with black leaders in Boston history Mm -hmm. who have been insufficiently preserved, celebrated, recognized. Dart, glad you're here. Thanks for having me. So let's just start with reactions. You you listened to that conversation with Kim, Kimberly about Mariah Stewart, your reactions. Uh, if you've ever been in Beacon Hill, I actually worked in Beacon Hill for years, um, and I would just walk up up and down Joy and Belknap Street and all the connecting streets, and I would just see these small plaques, these plaques, sometimes gold, sometimes silver, and they would be on different houses. And these houses are not big. They're small and you have to go up to them and read them very closely. And pretty much what you see is black history, because on the north slope of Beacon Hill, there was a black enclave of free people who built their own homes, <laughs> were leaders in, um, in, 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 a, in, a, in a, um community. And, you know, they had these amazing jobs and they just organized and they should be recognized by everybody who knows anything about American history, but they're not. And had you heard at all of Mariah Stewart? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm surprised that um, she made such a great case for why she should be added. Because Mariah Stewart is one of the (laughs) completely obscure people in Boston black history. Again, largely due to the fact that they ran her out of town because she decided to write for the Liberator and speak truth to power. After just about a year, which is really quite striking. Yes. So th- this is this was an interesting thing. This plaque thing is interesting to me, Dart, mm-hmm. because in the area that you're talking about near Beacon Hill, those plaques are, are on houses that still stand. Yes. But we have a lot of houses, a lot of physical sites, biz- old businesses, et cetera, that represent black leadership in Boston history Mm -hmm. that don't stand anymore. There's a plaque where something used to be. Mm -hmm. So talk about that. And, and I don't, let me, I don't know how to feel about that because lots of old buildings go away. Mm -hmm. Right. But do we disproportionately have pieces of black leadership history that went away? Okay. So perfect example. Um, 451 Mass Ave, which was at the end of my block or the beginning of my block from how you think of it was one of the original, uh, pieces of property and it was the house of one of the uh, Boston chapter of the NAACP and if you look at the NAACP it comes out of the Niagara movement the overwhelming majority of people who started it were from Boston and or Massachusetts Roxbury especially and to know that people walk by 451 Mass Ave and they have no idea that that was the NAACP chapter is insane. However, if you walk a few blocks down, uh, there's a 7-Eleven with a plaque on it because it was the old Tea Party, which was a rock club. And people walk by that and they see a sign that anybody could see from the street. And people walk right by a monument of the NAACP, a chapter that did a lot in terms of national garner national attention and was at the forefront of a whole bunch of movements. So if you think about that, it's very disproportionate. So at first, I'm going to flag for listeners that on Monday, we re-aired a conversation with Carrie Greenidge about her book on William Monroe Trotter, which included some of the history of the, of the founding of that chapter of the mm-hmm. NAACP. We'll point back to it on our website at RadioBoston.org. Um, and there are other places. Uh, there is the, and I, I right now, the, the name of the club escapes me, but 
where black jazz players. Oh, uh, but, yeah. Mother's Lunch, 510 uh, Columbus, which is right down the street from where I live. I walk by it every day. It wraps around. It has uh, like what would would have been a sidewalk cafe as a upstairs and downstairs. You look at this building. It wraps around like uh, the, the, uh, the brownstones in Sunset Park. And it's one of one on on um on Columbus Ave and you look at it and you're like what was this what mm-hmm. was this now it's a private it's private property it's owned by a person and there's no plaque on it to denote what it was but growing up in my neighborhood people would tell me that that was mother's lunch and tell me who was there who used to live there Sammy Davis Jr. and the Will Maston trio used to live there uh, Miles Davis uh, Sarah Vaughn everybody famous who sang or was a jazz musician or a jazz artist you know kind of came much through there, there. Yeah. yeah so what do we do do right I, have we made any gains you know you were here we talked uh, at some point in 2023 so less than a year ago about doing a better job of marking Malcolm X's time in, living in Boston what are the what do we do now to do a better job raising the black leadership in our collective Boston history Dart Adams I think uh, one of the things we have to do is we have to uh, come to grips with the fact that one of the main issues with Boston is that there's this narrative that runs that lets everybody think that Boston is this one, is one thing. It's Pactacad, Havajad. It's uh, it's uh, people drinking Dunkins. <laughs> it's uh, it's and it's townies and it's mass holes. And that makes me feel completely erased because. My family's been in Boston, came for uh, the Great Migration from Slocum and Dothan, Alabama. And, you know, they carved out a space here over over three to four generations. And their existence in South End, Lower Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, it's like, oh, so we just did nothing. And all of our neighbors <laughs> uh, don't exist either because there's this one homogenous idea of Boston. And the one way to combat that is by... Making everybody realize, A, that there's black, Latino, Asian history in Boston and has been and is going to be. And we make that declaration by saying, look at all these monuments, look at all these things that have always existed, have existed before. And we're going to value them. You know, when uh, the new Boston City Council president, uh, Ruth Z. Louis-Jean, was mm-hmm. here, I talked about her family's history of, of immigration. And I said, you know, yours is a Boston story. And she looked at me and said, I thought you were going to say yours is the new Boston story. And she said, but it's not. Mm-mm. It's the Boston story. And she said, we don't, we don't talk about it that way. Yeah, and I that's mean, what you're saying. I mean, my mom and f- my mom's part of the family came from, you know, th- the South, Alabama, Florida, what have you. My dad's side of the family came from Honduras, you know, and that is a very unique Boston story. We had people from all the islands. We had people from, you know, the Middle East. We had people from uh, different parts of Africa. We had everybody come and be a part of this culture that's Boston. And when you went to Boston Public Schools, you saw this <laughs> this this mesh of kids who decided we're going to carve out our own culture. This very uniquely Boston from every background we have, but you can all t- you can tell where we're all from. And I feel like when I watch films, you know, when I watch TV shows, when I read books, that it, it never happened. And I'm like, I lived it. I'm living it. So it's distressing. Right there. Dart Adams, uh, Boston journalist, historian, author. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me.